Welcome to On the Middle East, the podcast of the award-winning media service, El Monitor, where each week we talk with the decision makers and thought leaders who are making the news and shaping the trends in the Middle East. I'm Andrew Parasoliti, president of El Monitor, and this week our guest is Michael Kaufman, director of the CNA Russia Studies Program. Michael is also a fellow at the Kennan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center and a senior editor at War on the Rocks. His research and writings focus on Russia and the former Soviet Union, and he specializes in the Russian armed forces, military thought, capabilities, and strategy. My conversation with Michael Kaufman about Russia's role and interests in the Middle East and what it means for the United States begins now. Michael, welcome to On the Middle East. Thanks for having me on your program. You wrote in Foreign Affairs last month that the U.S. should think of Russia not as a declining power, but what you call a persistent one, which is willing and able to threaten U.S. national security interests for at least the next 10 to 20 years, and including in the Middle East. So let's get into some of those areas where Russia could threaten or challenge the U.S. in the region. The latest round of talks on the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, JCPOA, or Iran nuclear deal, is taking place today in Vienna. Russia is a signatory to the JCPOA. Russia doesn't want Iran to develop a nuclear weapon. But Russia's position, I assume, has some nuance and angles as it relates to Russia's broader interests with Iran and the United States. So help us understand Russia's interests and policies as it approaches the Vienna talks and in, in the context of its interests with Iran and with the United States. I think the talks over Iran's nuclear program have always been one area where actually Russia's participation was on the whole remarkably constructive. Russia played a positive role in the original deal, the JCPOA. It played a positive role over a decade ago in um, supporting sanctions on Iran that potentially got Iran there. It had often actually offered proposals to find different ways out, um, such as removing uh, fissile material produced by Iranian reactors and the like, which Iranians ultimately didn't agree to. You know, I think that Russia does uh, overall support finding a way to restore the deal done under the Obama administration. I don't think Russia at all supports the U.S. position that Iran has to reverse course and the developments that were sort of breakout that they've done since then before the U.S. of sanctions. Often Russia might take more the uh, Iranian position on what needs to happen for the deal to move forward. I think there's also strong uh, skepticism, though, that that, this, uh, that there's going to be any return to JCPOA within the coming year. You know, on the whole, uh, Moscow doesn't want Iran to get nuclear weapons. It also doesn't want for there to be a US or an Israeli attack on Iran either in a broader war in the Middle East. Um, I think it would like for Iran to have access to economic resources so that Iran can be a useful partner so that they can buy Russian weapons and the like. There are benefits to Iran uh, having access to uh, the, the proceeds from its energy sales. 
But, you know, also on the back end of that, there's uh, obviously no great Russian desire to see Iranian energy on a global market in competing for market share and adding to that supply. So as you can see, there are a lot of sort of hands intellectually that, that Russia has to square in how it approaches both relations with Iran and the broader implications of uh, talks over Iran's nuclear weapons program. Let's talk a little bit about Syria, the Russian military intervention in the Syria war, especially when it seemed Assad was on the ropes in 2015, would seem to me have been a, a success, both in terms of the demonstration effect in the region, that is, we stand by our allies at their in, in their darkest hours, and also expanding Russia's basing and reach to the Mediterranean and giving its forces at seemingly low cost an opportunity to test weapons and operations. Does this sound right to you? And how how does Russia view its experience in Syria during the war? Generally so. I think that both from the perspective of the political establishment and the military, Syria is a remarkable success and, and a fairly cheap one too. It really doesn't cost much to maintain the force there. You know, the Russian force uh, in Syria typically ranges somewhere between 4,000 to 6,000 personnel, and that's sort of barely exceeding the size of one brigade, essentially a mixed aviation regiment with contractor and force protection support and the like. Uh, and, you know, Russia's clearly very much entrenched in Syria. It's building Tartus into a real naval base where now there's, to some extent, a permanently deployed force that can rearm, resupply, and over time will be able to repair. It's expanded its footprint somewhat in Syria. Let's use Syria as a logistical springboard throughput for deployments to Libya and other places in the Middle East, which is why it's become very lucrative. I think from a political perspective, uh, Syria allowed Russia to intervene and deliberately use force to, yes, change Assad's fortunes, to change the political positions of other actors intervening in Syria, including, including us and Turkey uh, and the like. Uh, Assad largely was able to destroy the opposition and still continues to fight. His force continued to fight over Idlib, and that's an unfolding saga. But on the whole, it's fair to say that the Russian intervention, together with Iran and, and other and Iranian proxies, were able to completely reverse uh, his military and political fortunes. Now, that said, of course, as other observers say, well, you know, but Russia's now in Syria. Yes, but Russia's now in Syria to to do nation building, right? Russia's goal was not even to save Assad personally. Russia doesn't care about Assad personally that much. He's Iran's ally. He's principally a client state of Moscow. The, the goal of Russian policy was to first save the regime, second, to restore the writ of the regime over the territory, not to rebuild the territory, not to turn into some other political system and the like. Um, help the regime sort of crush the opposition and including kind of the main jihadist elements like Jal al-Nusran and uh, down the line, even ISIS. Um, but the Russian goal is to stay. And so, and, and I'll talk a little bit about that. You know, often we, from a U.S. perspective, look at intervention in the Middle East, we sort of gauge success by our ability to, to leave and extricate ourselves from, our, from that conflict. But the Russian goal is not to find a lasting solution to that conflict or to extricate itself either. Uh, for the Russian military, Syria is very much the happy war. They like staying there. They've rotated uh, the bulk of the senior military leadership through Syria. They've rotated most of the air crews to Syria. 
Syriac has driven a lot of experiential learning adaptation. And that's now the place you have to essentially go to to serve to rank up. From the Russian military's point of view, it has tremendous value. It's much more valuable than many of the annual exercises that they run. And they've been cycling a lot of military leadership and personnel through that conflict to get experience in planning, to get some experience in, in uh, combat, although it's primarily uh, Russian airspace forces that have been involved, to essentially bloody the force. And the casualties in Syria have been very, uh, very low. In fact, many of them are actually primarily from transportation accidents. You know, you can have probably a third, if not more, of the Russian casualties were from uh, instance of getting forces into and out of theater. So the operation is readily sustainable. It allows for immense data gathering because it's not, from a Russian military point of view, a you know an operation where they're fighting um, kind of a low-end insurgent force. You know, one of the biggest boons is a daily interaction with U.S. forces or coalition Israeli forces and allows for immense data collection, you know, to be able to sit in between two U.S. Two US cruise missile strikes and get a much better sense of what that looks like. Yeah, because they have a lot of uh, surveillance, uh, reconnaissance platforms there. They're doing a lot of ELINT and SIGINT. You know, they have electronic warfare systems. They have air defense systems. And, and this is all meaningful for Russian thinking about a perspective high-end conflict with NATO, right? Those are lessons they can take away, um, sort of destroying what they call Shahid mobiles, you know, improvised VIDs and the like. That's far less interesting, although there are tactical innovations and lessons they've taken away from the conflict. Uh, so long story short, as they, they're in Syria to stay, the military really likes this war and thinks it's very useful for its purposes. And the political leadership sees it as you know, one of the pillars of Russia's return to the Middle East and, and uh, a, a, a newfound recognition that, yes, Russia is not just a regional power. It is a power capable of shaping events outside of its immediate region. Let's talk a little about the Russian diplomacy around Syria. It seems to me that Putin has been trying for years to work what I've called a series of, of bank shots. He's trying to reconcile Damascus and Ankara leveraging both concerns about the Kurds, and meanwhile trying to manage Iranian influence and mitigate some of Israel's concerns. Both of these efforts have been frustrating and frustrated. Um, what do you see in the Russian objective of all this diplomacy? And if you could also comment on the kind of personal touch that it seems Putin likes in all his dealings, including with Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. Putin also had a, a, a very good uh, relationship with former Israeli Prime Minister uh, Benjamin Netanyahu. How does he see his role and how does he view his counterparts in the region? Well, those are all good questions. So, you know, my take on first, the role of diplomacy in Syria itself was to try to set up these so-called de-escalation zones, which were mostly a way for the Syrian military backed by Russia and Iran to kind of eat this elephant one bite at a time to make slow and steady progress in regaining territory and then have uh, ceasefires, try to lock in those gains, provide for operational pauses, and then, you know, take another stab at it maybe the year afterwards. Um, and 
in looking at diplomacy with other actors. So those are all different complex relationships. I think the first people Russians actually told when they were going to deploy are probably the Israelis, and that's the relationship they wanted to deconflict right off the bat because Israel is the principal power in that part of the Middle East. And uh, for a long time, you know, Netanyahu enjoyed uh, sort of a unique position of being fully supported by both the United States and also by Moscow at the same time. I think that that relationship had been fraught with difficulty in um, during the height of the Israeli-Iranian war of attrition that began unfolding you know, in 2017, 2018, because that was definitely the one war in the Middle East that Russia didn't come to Syria for. And they were very much at, at risk in the middle of it and deeply frustrated by uh, having to deal with uh, Israeli strikes, Iranian encroachments and transshipments to Hezbollah and the like, and, you know, it cost the lives of, of Russian soldiers, particularly in that IL-20 shootdown incident for Syrian air defense, which has a tendency to miss the Israeli Air Force and then begin firing after the fact when the Israelis are gone, uh, shot down the uh, Russian uh, reconnaissance plane. But, you know, looking more broadly, I, I think that on the whole, Russia, Russia's comfortable relationship they have with Israel, the really difficult relationship that's fraught with complications, one with Turkey, where, you know, at the personal level, yes, uh, Vladimir Putin is able to regularly talk to Erdogan. In fact, I think Erdogan is the one leader in the world that calls him the most, and they regularly resolve things at that level. But the reason they have to have so many calls is because their establishments are broadly disagreeable, right? The Russian military and other parts of the Russian establishment see themselves in a host of proxy wars with Turkey, you know, one in Syria, one in Libya, um, one in Nagorno-Karabakh, being on opposite sides of that conflict. Uh, Turkey seen by Russia as, you know, a country that uh, with whom they try to compartmentalize relations, right? Where they have areas of competition and areas of cooperation, the economic relationship with somebody uh, asymmetrical that is Turkey depends much more on, on that part of the relationship with Russia than Russia depends on Turkey. Um, I'm of course painting with a broad brush here, but I, I definitely think that that relationship is, is the most prob problematic one for Moscow. And you can see areas of deep miscalculation. Early on when Russia deployed to Syria, they actually thought that it was a relatively friendly and broadly accepted deployment until Turkey shot down their C-24 in November 2015. And there was deep anger in Moscow, not, not so much at Turkey, but actually at themselves, because they felt that they knew Erdogan really well, and they had miscalculated on an understanding of what kind of leader he is. He's kind of viewed as, a, I think, more of a gambler and a rash, more emotional decision maker in Russia. As for the question on Vladimir Putin himself, well... It's a personalized authoritarian system. So what the person thinks kind of matters. And uh, and you, you sort of need them at the end of the day to make any major deals. Uh, and, and from them flow uh, some, of the big, some of the big decisions. But there are a lot of players involved in Russian policy in the Middle East. They are individuals that are competing to set policy. You know, the MLD does compete with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And there's other sort of uh, semi, what you might call semi-state actors or, or, or state-empowered actors that are involved in this, in this mix. And there's plenty of room for entrepreneurism and attempts to set policy. So I'm sorry if I've kind of woven a complex story. There, there are a lot of players involved, ultimately, especially if you get down to more tertiary conflicts like Libya. It is a complex story. Let me ask about 
the Russian-Iran relationship in Syria, one of the U.S. objectives has been to try to reduce pushback uh, Iranian influence in Syria. Um, you've also alluded to, you know, perhaps some tension in terms of Russian uh, Iranian interests there. Uh, how is that? Is, is that tension actually there? How deep is it? And is it something that the U.S. can exploit in terms of its Syria policy? Look, there's a challenge there because one of the big first order questions is why does Russia care about Iranian influence in Syria to begin with? What is Syria to Russia? It's not a core interest of Russia. It's not a bordering state of Russia. Um, does Russia fundamentally care to what extent Iran has influence in Syria? Right. So I'd say there are a couple of ways it does matter. First, Iranian military presence ultimately is a giant red flag in front of Israel. So the more that Iran is present near Israeli borders, the more likely is Israel to take military action and the war attrition will unfold. The second issue is trying to work with the Syrian military. The Russian armed forces have been trying to transform them. You know, when they first intervened in Syria, they realized that it arrived too late. There was no such thing as a Syrian army. There were individual pockets of fighting forces and leaders that titularly were kind of aligned with the flag of the Syrian regime, but they themselves did not an institutionalized army represent anymore. So the Russian military kind of had to terraform the space like they've done many other places, tried to build, you know, an assault corps, uh, add Russian mercenaries into the mix to have some dependable units with staying power on the battlefield and eventually try to turn those pockets of fighting power back into some semblance of a usable military that could be backed, right? And, and of course, ran headlong into the challenge of sort of immense corruption and, and practices in the Syrian military that, that are exacerbated by Iranian influence. So I think there, uh, there are definitely are areas of, of you say different views and perspectives on what the Syrian military should be, what it should look like, and who has the primary relationship in trying to shape the Syrian military between the Russian military and Iran. But these are kind of manageable differences ultimately, and they're somewhat localized to the specific conflict or context. At the end of the day, Syria represents a, a area of vital interest for Iran and not so much for Russia, right? So long-term I, I think from the Russian perspective, this is an area to manage differences with Iran, not to engage in some kind of competition, because when everything's said and done, Russia can always leave. Uh, Iran can't leave the region. So that's kind of my view on it. I don't know what opportunities it offers for exploitation. That's, you know, if, if you press me, I would not be able to explain to you what the U.S. policy on Syria is right now. So I'm or, or what uh, role we really have in that in that conflict. I think the conversation on Kurds is another interesting one as well, and, and what the future of that looks like, because Russia set up this whole deconfliction mechanism with uh, with Turkey to try to uh, try to manage uh, Turkey Turkish demands to not have a contiguous sort of Kurdish enclave along their borders. It, it, it's such a fragmented space; it's almost difficult to wrap your head around the different the different factions and parties and their proxies involved in it. Let's come back just briefly to um, Russian-Turkish relations. You wrote uh, this month in Foreign Affairs that Russia won't let Ukraine go without a fight. Talk about the Turkish role in that potentially brewing conflict. 
Right. Well, I think, you know, the Turkish approach and, and the Russian approach to managing the relationships have always been that they're really not going to limit each other in, in backing opposing forces, which I think bodes very ill for the future of that relation, right? Because in order to have a detente, you know, usually implicit in it, you're going to have an agreement not to go after each other's vital interests and not to try to back directly parties that are opposed to in a conflict. So because naturally Russia intervened in, in Syria and basically you know, completely overturned Turkish foreign policy there, uh, Turkey got involved in, in backing Azerbaijan very visibly militarily in the Nagorno-Karabakh war. Turkey's had no problems and no qualms with defense cooperation with Ukraine. And Russia has been in this ongoing war with Ukraine since, since 2014. So I think from a Russian perspective, probably the Turkish provision TB2 drones to Ukraine doesn't make any difference militarily. And I want to clarify why. All this tactical and military stuff doesn't matter. It doesn't make, it's not a game changer at the operational strategic level, and it means nothing at the political level. Like politicians don't really understand how a lot of military technology works. Most of what they do know is usually wrong, and they're not very well informed in decisions when it comes to questions of war on the ba basis of, you know, tactical level military advantage in these things. So, you know, there's no direct connection between you know, the TB2 drone that Ukraine acquired and anything that's happening at the same political level. Just international politics simply doesn't work that way. But what it does matter for is Russian perception that Turkey is actively going to back Ukraine, at least in a sense that it is providing them key defense articles. And that is a very unfriendly political move from a policy perspective, right? Um, I guess that they view that as being manageable within their relationship given a lack of any other alternatives. But I, I think that that's just one more nail in, in, the, in the many reasons why the Russian establishment sees itself as, as ultimately competing with Turkey across a range of contests and seeing Turkish policy as being more expansive and, and increasingly inconsiderate. Where does Russia stand on the transition in Libya? Elections are supposed to go ahead next month, the U.S.-led NATO intervention, which deposed former Libyan dictator Muammar Gaddafi, was a kind of never again uh, turning point for Putin and Russian policy in the region. What does Russia want to see happen in Libya? Yeah, I think um, that's definitely one of those prominent points in U.S.-Russian relations, the, the Russian perception that they abstained on that resolution that allowed for the intervention. And then not only was the intervention used to conduct regime change, but they and their concerns regarding um, energy extraction contracts and the like, that they essentially were kicked out. Even though before that, when the US was improving its relationship with Gaddafi regime, Russia was actually encouraged to sort of do more business there. So they felt, I think they felt doubly betrayed. And I think the latter one is a particular sore point in terms of Russian economic and business interest. So, you know, what does Moscow want to see in Libya? Uh, first, they would like to see uh, themselves having a deciding role in how that conflict shakes out. And the best way for Mo Russia to achieve that is, of course, to be involved uh, as it has been one of the main coalitions, and they back Haftar. Um, they've not been particularly supportive of stabilizing agreements. So they've been supportive of them and then immediately turned around thereafter and, you know, back after and essentially 
uh, backed an opposing force that that ruined any chance of that grant being implemented. So I, I think I think they've probably it's more fair to say that they they play a sabotaging role in uh, in Libya in the last six seven years. Um, well, Haftar is not able to take Tripoli, right? That's clear now. He's too militarily weak. Uh, there's a definable limit to how far Moscow is willing to intervene on his behalf, and it's not going to go beyond the sort of uh, Wagner mercenary-operated uh, forces that they provided, which has now included air power and, and much more heavy conventional systems. But nonetheless, the Russian military itself is not going to deploy to Libya like it did in Syria. That seems to be the judgment of the general staff based on what one can tell looking at it. So down the line, I think Moscow wants to have a strong role again for itself in terms of um, uh, contracts and economic opportunities. I think it's a debate to what extent Russia would like uh, a standing military presence. I actually, some people think they don't. I suspect they do. There is utility in the geographic position in Libya from a Russian military perspective. And technically they're already using a base. The Russian military has to logistically supply these Wagner forces. So de facto they are in Libya and they are using this. But what I know in Libya, they've agreed to a phased withdrawal of foreign forces, but without a clear timeline. I could be wrong on that. And to me, a ceasefire agreement that was signed last year, I see that probably more as a pause and interlude to another phase on the conflict rather than a path towards sustainable peace. So call me a pessimist. But the last point on this is look, it's easy to look at Libya as a conflict between Russia and Turkey because these are the most visible powers intervening. But that's not really the case. Right? Libya is a conflict between two coalitions. One coalition is essentially led by the UAE, which is what got Russia in there. Um, and the other one is probably more led by Qatar, which now then had Turkey intervene on its, on, on its side. So it's not like it's a conflict that was spun out by Russia and Turkey. It's more of a conflict that's being driven heavily by the UAE by Qatar and opposite sides of it, and then associated states in those coalitions. Do you see any opportunities for Russia to challenge U.S. influence in any of the other theaters or countries where the U.S. has had substantial influence, such as in the Gulf, in Egypt, or elsewhere? Sure, absolutely. I think that a lot of it's actually derived from the policy and approach we took um, during the Arab Spring, right? I think that first you had uh, disenchantment amongst a number of countries there because they began to see the United States as a fair weather friend and over-dependence on the U.S. as a liability. Second, you have the sort of alternative actor effect that is after decades of having no external actor in the Middle East really besides the United States, Russian intervention in Syria showed if Russia could save Assad, then it's a country we're dealing with to some of these other dictators. And they naturally could see that, you know, building relationship and ties with Moscow is meaningful because if Moscow can shape some events in the Middle East. Yeah, it's naturally no substitute for the United States. But that doesn't matter. You know, when, when you only have one alternative, any other alternative looks really interesting for a while, right? You suddenly get excited about the possibility of having, of being engaged, of engaging with any other actor even though Moscow generally doesn't do anything for most of the people involved. Like it takes everybody's phone calls, but it's not interested in a lot of their problems, right? One thing that, that, you know, Russian political leadership, I think really learned from Soviet involvement in the Middle East is that areas like the Middle East is where great powers go thinking they're going to shape events 
and develop influence, but actually they generally get mugged by local actors. They're not really able to shape the views or policies of local actors when it comes to their own vital interests in the area. And they end up spending a lot of money. And when they ask themselves what they got for their money at the end of the day, they're deeply disappointed, which is why Russia's taking on a much more prospecting role in the region, right? And trying to keep the costs low and not trying to get into the big sunk cost fallacies and diminishing returns that the Soviet Union experienced in the region during the Cold War. But one area there's a clear similarity is that, you know, it's gone back to this region, both um, prospecting, prospecting for economic benefits, for external legitimacy, but as an opportunity, right? The Middle East and, and Africa writ large is a flank theater in a broader competition with the United States. The primary theater is obviously Europe, has been, uh, is, and probably will be for a long time to come, but a really good flank theater for Moscow to try to take up and contest the United States is this area. Doesn't have fixed uh, alliances, alliance blocks, like let's say NATO, for example. Um, it has countries with a lot of conflicting foreign policies. There are a lot of wedges between those countries in the United States. And US influence has been, at least from a Russian point of view, on a relative decline, not just globally, but particularly in this region post-2011. So it offers a lot of opportunities. Whether Russia walks away with anything meaningful from there, up for debate, that's a whole separate question altogether. But you quickly see sort of the expansion of, of, of Russia's role in, in small ways. We shouldn't aggrandize the story, but outside of its region to adjacent regions, like Middle East, like Africa, and then even further afield to you know countries like Venezuela, where, hey, Russia doesn't have a deciding role there or anywhere in Latin America. But it is interesting that it is able to project influence to some extent in order to contest U.S. foreign policy preferences actually in you know, a region that, that the Washington establishment often sees as its own. So, so here, uh, this is kind of where the narrative of a global Russia emerged. I, I think there's considerable debate whether, you know, how much is really there, um, but I do think it's significant to, to appreciate how much of an activist foreign policy Russia has developed post-2014, how this confrontation had led them to take on a much larger, pursue a much larger uh, role in international politics. In some respects, it forced them to do it, I think, because they really lacked alternatives because of the pressure they were facing, um, and, and try to really establish a sense of Russia as a great power and as a global actor outside of its immediate region. Michael, last question. How does Putin view the challenges and opportunities when he's looking at the transition from Donald Trump to Joe Biden. Putin and Trump seemed on a, a personal level to get along fine, although there were U.S. sanctions and many divisive issues. Uh, he also has, has known Biden over the years. How has he been looking at U.S. policy uh, from his perspective and uh, what's he looking to achieve in the coming years? Well, I'm going to give a sense of how I think Moscow views this writ large. I mean, I personally don't know what Putin thinks. Anyone who says they can read Putin's mind is trying to sell you something. But um, I think that overall, the takeaway in Moscow and the Trump administration was that this was broadly a, a very terrible period because Donald Trump was not able to deliver anything his own policy establishment in when it came to deals made. Uh, Russia became a domestic political issue in the United States as opposed to a foreign policy issue, which is what they want it to be. And the way they got there is by meddling in the elections. So I don't know what lessons they learned from that, but 
I think the big takeaway was it was a frozen period in many ways in US-Russia relations. And it underscored the Russian perception that it doesn't matter who's the president of the United States. Their conflict is ultimately with the US policy establishment. And that policy establishment will hand tie any president who wants to pursue a more positive relationship. And there's no reason for US president to spend political capital to pursue a more positive relationship with Moscow. So the takeaway from the Trump administration on the whole was that it was all bad and nothing got better during this time period. And to some extent, it was unpredictable, which Russian elites really dislike. Um, the only thing they like with the Trump administration is that it really put into a tailspin America's reputation and it created big wedges between the US and its allies. So it also tied US hands as well. Um, looking into the Biden administration, I think that you know, they, they fully agree on the on the course taken of strategic stability, right? Which is kind of a, I don't know, a detente light or a detente minus. I think the administration would want to call it that, but it's kind of how it reads is sort of less substantive detente. Uh, I think they really don't like that the Biden administration continues this mantra of Russia, um, you know, well, let's just say non-decline, but there's a sense that it's sort of cornered and there isn't a lot of learning that I think had been necessarily happened there from the Obama administration. But in general, the real Russian problem with this administration is that it wants to focus on China. And they're very worried about being relegated uh, to a much lower tier priority. Um, and that, that only encourages trying to trying to get attention, trying to get on the agenda. You know, on the whole, I think that they probably rather welcome the Biden administration. The Biden administration's agenda from a practical standpoint makes sense. Some are things Moscow wants to pursue. The big challenge is that the fundamental problems in strategic stability include the unsettled issue of Ukraine, right? And and that's very much going to end up being on the agenda one way or another, even if the United States wants to focus on other issues pertaining to strategic stability, it is very hard for Moscow to agree to strategic stability if there's no kind of modus vivendi or understanding on the way forward when it comes to Ukraine. And that's coming very much to the fore right now. In fact, we started the year with uh, Ukraine being somewhat a centerpiece. So I think that's going to be one of the challenges. I'll, I'll conclude on this. I, I do think that um, one of the problems we have is a failure to realize how unstable the former Soviet space is, that these are ultimately still conflicts, these are wars of Soviet succession, and that it is very possible that there'll be another significant war in Eastern Europe, either uh, resulting from the crisis in Belarus or a repeat war between Russia and Ukraine. And I think any administration policy folks need to take that seriously, no matter how much they want to focus U.S. strategy on China. Yeah, and that's that's the reality: is that um, world affairs are are not going to agree with your agenda and how you prioritize things. Michael, thank you for taking the time to speak with us uh, today. Really enjoyed this. Pleasure having you on on the Middle East. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on your program. We will return after this short break. Elizabeth Hagedorn, and I'm the State Department correspondent at El Monitor. And I'm Joe Snell. I'm El Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sift through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let El Monitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to El Monitor's audio series on the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman, and on Israel with Ben Caspi. 
you can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms. And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts, along with first-class reporting and analysis. Thanks to our guest, Michael Kaufman, and our production team of Phil Calabro of Almonitor and Beowulf Rockland of Two Squared Media Productions. We will return next week, and if you haven't done so, please sign up for all three of our Almonitor podcasts at your favorite podcast platform. Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel, and Gilles' guest this month is former U.S. Ambassador to Israel Martin Indyk. And Martin is talking with Gilles about his new book, Master of the Game, about Henry Kissinger's Middle East diplomacy. And on Israel with Ben Caspit, whose guest this week is Israel's Environmental Protection Minister, Tamar Zandberg. And of course, this podcast on the Middle East, where next week, Amber and Zaman will be interviewing another decision maker or thought leader in the region. Thank you all for listening. And please keep up with all of the news and trends in the region at lmonitor.com.